Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies. Welcome to the Story Night Podcast. I'm Jessica, and I just wanted to thank everyone who has been listening to this new podcast. Since we launched about two weeks ago, there have been over 1,500 listens, which I just believe shows how much we women need and value each other's stories. If this is actually the first time you've listened, you can check out episode one, and that gives the background of the Story Night Ministry as a whole. But tonight, we are venturing out of McMinnville, Oregon, and I have a special guest from Alabama. Uh, see, my family's all from uh, Tennessee, and now everyone's kind of scattered around the Southeast. I'm really excited that my cousin agreed to come on and share her story. I hope you get so much out of this, and if nothing else, just love listening to the Southern accent, and if I start to slip into mine, you'll you'll know why. <laughs> so with that, uh, Stacy, would you just uh, give us a brief introduction of who you are? Sure. Jessica, I'm so glad you asked me to be on here and share my story. My name is Stacey Oliver. I have been married to my husband, Greg, for 28 years. We live in Birmingham, Alabama. We have been here for, I think, 23 years. We have three children. Well, I shouldn't say children. They're grown. Um, our oldest is 25. She's married. And our middle son is 21. And then our youngest is 18. She's a senior this year. So her graduation has is looking a little different. <laughs> so. Well, that kind of leads me into the next question, which is just how are you doing personally with pandemic life right now? And, and I, as a mother of a high school senior, I know that's part of it. Yes, it's been real interesting. Um, she's She has been really, I think, most upset about actually the walking across the stage because that was the thing that she was most excited about. So, but she's adjusted pretty well. The first couple of weeks were really rough with boredom and all of that, but we have been doing fairly well. I'm an introvert, so I'm not necessarily one who needs people all the time. And yet I need my small group of people that I'm comfortable with. I need the interaction and the one-on-one. Zoom is fine. I do a lot of that with friends, but I just need to be in person. So that's probably been the hardest thing for me. Um, love to go to lunch with my friends. <laughs> so can't do that. And that's been really hard. We have a ministry that we have a lot of support groups and they meet in person weekly. And that's been hard not to have that. We have been meeting, you know, through Zoom, which is just not the same. Um, but overall, you know, we've been home uh, as everybody has. We've played a whole lot of games, which has been great. And we don't normally make time to do that. So been sitting on the deck a lot. So overall been okay, but I am beyond ready to get back to whatever the next phase is. <laughs> And your um your husband, my cousin, has been doing some pretty fun living room concerts, yes, which have yes. been on Facebook, which have been yes. fantastic. Um, so maybe we can put a, a link in the show notes or something for anyone who wants yeah. to check those yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, your story covers uh, so many chapters and uh, multiple continents, actually. So I just kind of wanted to invite you to dive in and uh, tell us your story. Tell us about your childhood and then how you ended up back in America, how you met Greg and, and what happened after that. All right. 
Well, I'll start at the very beginning. I was born in Pennsylvania. My parents are uh, Yankees. They're from that area. And they became Christians when I was about five years old. In fact, I accepted Christ as my Savior when I was five. So we were all kind of becoming Christians at the same time. They started going to a church that was in the area and met some missionaries. And from there, God just laid it on their hearts that they wanted to be missionaries. So um, in 1980, I was nine years old and my parents moved our family to Africa. So that was a huge, huge, obviously huge <laughs> culture shock from Pennsylvania to West Africa. Originally, we started out in Senegal. So we were there for four years and then we spent four years in Liberia. I mean, there's so many, so many things I could share about that experience. Initially, I, yeah, the culture shock was there, um, smells, the heat. It was so, it was so hard. And I, I imagine for my parents, even, you know, so much harder. I was nine years old. So I, I adjusted pretty quickly. Well, one of the first things that they had missionaries do was to go into um, another city from where the headquarters was. They would go to another city and study French because that was like the, the main language. And they were terrible language learners. So they had told the, the people at the headquarters that if, if you need any help with, like, I guess they call it, um, support, support work, that we're willing to do whatever. And so they did go out and study language for a little bit. And they put me at a boarding school at the headquarters. And I, again, nine years old, did terrible. I hated it. I started sucking my thumb again. I was in fifth grade and I didn't talk. I barely ate. And it was just awful. But thankfully, two weeks into that, it was only two weeks and it felt like an eternity. The house parents that I had, she was pregnant and having complications. So she had to leave. And then they remembered my parents saying, we're open to do whatever. And so they asked them to come and be house parents. So that, so they were the house parents for the dorm of kids whose parents were out in the tribe for the next four years. So I got to have my parents with me. And when they came, Everybody was like, oh my gosh, she smiles, she eats, she's happy, you know, and I, it totally changed for me. I have one uh, sibling, he's three years younger, and his personality is very different. He adjusted much easier than I did. But anyway, so yeah, it was 1980. So there was no running water, there was no electricity. It was a third world country. I mean, it was rough. We had ladies that would do our laundry. And hang, you know, hang it out on on the clothesline outside, hand wash everything. I was outside all the time. You just played. You, I went to school with other missionary kids. We had a missionary school and played outside, climbed trees, rode our bikes, walked to the village. I mean, just, it was amazing. I know that it was hard for my parents because living like that has got to be hard. But again, I was a kid, so I'm just having fun. And moved to Liberia for my high school years. And that was a still a third world country. Senegal was a dry desert-like atmosphere. Liberia was a rainforest. So beautiful, beautiful scenery and all of that. But all of the years, I would say, were amazing and hard. And I had, you know, amazing um, foundation for God's word being taught to me. Like, that was a big piece of my faith growing up was just that, that foundation that was laid. Something that I've come to realize later, much later in life was that, and I always knew that there were a lot of rules. So, you know, with a mission board, with a school that has, you know, like a boarding school type situation, there's going to be a lot of rules and that makes sense. But 
there was so much emphasis on those rules and it's so important to be good and to be a good testimony and to be a good example. And these things, you know, Jesus is smiling when you do these things. and He's so disappointed when you do these. And, and there's truth in those things. Um, there's some truth in all of those things, but not in the way that it's like up to me. And that's what I took away. I wouldn't say that any one person specifically said that, but that is the message that I received because when you put so much emphasis on the stuff, that's what, you know, especially kids they're, that they're going to take away. And so I, from a very young age, again, an introvert, I was very insecure, just always struggled to feel like I mattered. I always looked at people that were much more outgoing and confident and would think, oh, if I could just be like them. And since I can't, do that. Well, what if I'm their friend? So I had people throughout my life when I look back that I would attach myself to, you know, and um, because they were everything that I wish I could be like, but as long as I'm their friend, then that makes me important and special because they chose me. And so I think that, you know, people thinking that Stacy's a good kid, Stacy's so sweet, Stacy's so this, she's so quiet. She's like, oh, she's so cute. That's what I got all my identity in. That was what made me special to me. And so the affirmation and the just validation for being a good kid was what I set out to continue to do, like be the good one, obey the rules. And so again, not that obeying the rules is bad, but when your motivation is to get people to like you and to feel valued, it's just not healthy. So I graduated from high school in Liberia. And as a senior, I was, again, still doing the same things that I did in Senegal, playing outside, riding bikes. Whenever it would rain, it was like the best thing in the world. So we'd be outside playing in the mud. I'm a senior in high school and just having a blast. And I do miss that. Just how much time we spent outside, how much time there was with like every Friday night we played games. It was so incredible. In Liberia, also, we we spent a lot more time with um, the Liberians. So the girls would go to the village and they, you know, you've seen pictures. They put their babies on their backs and have the, you know, the they're called lapas in Liberia anyway. Wrap them, you know, tie the baby on their back. And so they would tie them on our backs and we'd walk around with the babies and wash the clothes in the creek. You know, that was kind of fun to wash a few items in the creek with the... <laughs> With the Liberians, I swam in swimming holes. The older guys and some of the adults would check the swimming hole for snakes. And if it was good, it looked good. Yeah, we go in the swimming hole. Like, I I can't even believe some of the things I did. Swung on vines out of the... I don't think the swinging on vines was something that probably the parents would have been okay with because of the ravine that we were swinging over. But I didn't die. So <laughs> I've good memories and good stories to tell. But it was just a lot, a lot of fun. But again, you know, the, the common theme was being good. You know, my brother had some, has some stories of not being so good on the mission field. And there were some other kids that got into trouble. And I just never wanted to do that. I never wanted to sneak out. I never wanted to go do wild and crazy things. You know, part of it was fear. Part of it was, no, I got to be good. You know, I've got this reputation to, to uphold. But anyway, I'm very thankful for those years. I really do believe that the foundation was laid for my faith and just giving me another perspective and just, I don't, I don't know, just a good upbringing. But I did graduate from high school there. And my best friend that also was there, her family's from Anniston, Alabama. So we heard about a Bible college that was in Birmingham that helped missionary kids financially. 
And so that is what got me to Birmingham. Um, I came back with her family. My parents were not due for furlough, so they stayed in Africa and I left with this other family. And I, I told my mom in, you know, years, years ago, I'm like, I don't remember being real sad about it, like leaving y'all. I mean, I can't imagine, but I think I was so excited to go to America and go to college, you know. I do remember major culture shock coming back to America. It was really hard. I don't remember so much being home, like missing my parents as much. But I think, again, because I was so excited to start something new, but the culture shock was really rough. I remember just being out with friends from college and they were talking about you know, movies and music and had no clue. I didn't have any, and I still don't. I'm, I'm like clueless to all that stuff. I just, Greg, my husband is, yeah, Jessica knows just like ask him a question. He's going to know the stupid trivia. You know, I call it stupid trivia, but um, <laughs> he remembers all this crazy stuff. Not me, but it was rough. I mean, it was really hard, but that's where I met Greg. We were not specifically interested in dating initially. He was kind of wild, in my opinion, because again, I'm hot off the mission field and very rules oriented. And we didn't go to the theater, couldn't play with playing cards. And the students were going to a movie and I think it was rated G. And I wouldn't go because it was at the theater. So I know that he and others thought I was Miss Holy Holy, you know, And so, and I'll own that because I didn't mean to be, but I just, it's just, it's what it was. And so eventually though, we started, I was having some hard times and he was, I think, breaking up with a girl that he had been dating. And so we found ourselves in the gym one night and just started talking and that turned into a friendship and eventually a conversation about dating. And this is, this is so funny because me and my rules, I had made a list in high school. Our teacher, one of our teachers had encouraged us to make a list of the qualities that we wanted in our husband. And so I had the list. I don't like think I literally had it anymore, but I had it in my mind. And one of them was that I had to marry somebody that wanted to be a missionary. And so I told Greg that, and he goes, well, I don't really feel called to be a missionary. And I said, well, then we can't date. I mean, it's just not going to work. And so we tried, we talked for, I don't know how days, weeks, I don't know, trying to, basically find a way. And because I started to really like him at this point, but man, I was, I was not gonna, you know, deviate from my list. And so finally he said, you know, Stacey, I am so open to what God has right now. I don't feel called, but if he made that clear to me, I would obey and I would do it. And I'm like, okay, that's all I need to hear. And so we started dating. We dated about nine months. We were engaged about nine months and then got married. A year to two years after we got married, we moved to Louisiana. Greg took a position at a church. He was a worship pastor. And we were there for three years. We had our first child there. And when she was two, we moved back to Birmingham. And we've been back here ever since. There's so many things about being in the ministry and the rules and the way that I was raised kind of just fit with being in the ministry, being a a worship pastor's wife. Again, I was going to be the good one, set the example. Greg was the one that was on stage. So in fact, let me back up a minute. One of the things that drew me to Greg was just the same thing that as I was growing up and I looked to other people that were, you know, had it together, more outgoing, whatever. Greg had all those things as well. Very outgoing. I was very uncomfortable by myself when I would be with people. But if I was with him, he could do all the talking and then I wouldn't have have so much. And I would 
look as popular as him because I was with him, if that makes sense. And so that is one of the things that drew me to him was that he just, it worked, you know, it fit together. And I felt safe and comfortable. Those aren't bad things, but somewhere in there, there you, you find out where it's not healthy, not, you know, totally healthy. And so when he was a worship pastor, same thing, he's up on stage, he's leading worship, he's doing all of the upfront stuff. And I am behind the scenes hearing everybody talk about how amazing he is and a great worship pastor and his voice and all of this, that, and the other. And I loved it. I was like, I know, and he's my husband, you know, and he chose me and just getting again, affirmation from that. And also from serving, I'm not going to say that everything I did as a worship pastor's wife, when I was you know, at the church, you know, selfish or just to get the affirmation and the pats on the back, but a whole lot of it was, I'm not sure how much of it was done because I wanted to do it because I was so really I would say in bondage to being a good person and needed to come through for people. If ever anybody, and this may, this may ring a bell with a lot of people. If ever anybody asked me to do something, I so hoped there was something on my calendar so that I could say I can't because I have fill in the blank to do. I could not just say no, don't want to do that or just no, couldn't do it. And so I know that over the years I lied, you know, and made up stuff. Sorry to say. And so that kind of a little bit of background on me and kind of how I functioned. I love, I love people. I love my friends. Again, my safe, you know, small circle of people because I'm not an extrovert, but I always enjoyed my friends and spending time with them. You know, we're having our kids. We moved back to Birmingham and had our middle and, and third child. And that was hard. There were hard things about that, but it was a lot of fun as well. You know, we're just kind of rocking and rolling through church ministry. We, a little bit about Greg and I, as far as our dynamic, we always have gotten along really well. I think that we became really good friends before we started dating and then just grew in our friendship. So we had a really, really good friendship before we got super serious, which I think is so, so healthy and a good way to do it. So when we got married, we didn't really fight over the toilet paper, you know, which way it goes on the roll or the toothpaste and all that kind of stuff. We didn't really fight about those kinds of things. When we did fight, whether it was a big issue or not, it was a doozy. Like we just would escalate and we never really got to the bottom of it. You know, it was just whatever it started to be. By the time we got done, it was way off topic. And so what would eventually happen is I usually end up crying. And then he'd say, mm, sometimes it was hard for him to say, sorry, he he might say, sorry, I'd say, sorry, because we needed it to be okay. We needed to get back to, we're okay. Let's just move on. But we never got to the bottom of stuff. So there was just year after year after year of, you know, when we would fight again, we didn't fight all the time. It wasn't like we had this horrible, toxic relationship, but when we did, it was bad and we didn't really know how to work through it. There were times I would say that I thought we needed to get help and talk to our pastor because it just seemed like we needed some help to work through these things. And Greg was like, oh, no, we're fine. We don't need that. And so, you know, we would go on and all of the friends, you know, we would get teased as just the ideal couple. Funny side note, we would play the newlywed game at different you know, functions and we'd always win, almost always because we knew each other so well. And, and we, you know, we felt really good about that. 
And it would soothe those insecurities momentarily. You know, it would be like, ah, okay, yes, I'm good. I got this. We're good. I remember friends would, if they wouldn't speak to me specifically at church, they wouldn't like ignore me on purpose, but they'd walk by and they wouldn't be like, oh, hey, Stacey. I would worry like, what have I done? What did I say? And then the next time I saw them, if they said, hey, or smiled, I'd be like, oh, okay, everything's fine. That must be fine. And I was exhausted, but I don't, I didn't put it all together. I didn't realize why. And so that's kind of how we functioned. Greg was loving his worship pastor, you know, ministry. He was doing an amazing job. We had big, huge move. We moved to a bigger location and there was just a ton that went with that. There was remodeling and all the, you know, audio stuff he was over. And he was, I remember him telling me he just felt like he was going to have a nervous breakdown or something because it was so much on him. And that was really tough. But something that also goes along with all of this stuff, just the insecurities is I look to Greg, just like I look to, you know, doing things for people and the validation from hearing people say, well done, Stacy." I look to Greg for everything. And I, I don't think that's an exaggeration. Anytime something was wrong, I'd call Greg. I might pray about something, but pray quick so I could say I prayed and then call Greg because he could fix it. He's very good at that. He has an answer for everything. <laughs> he makes it up. He's like, he's got an answer. He can come up and it sounds great. And so I, I, that's, I just leaned on him for everything and that wasn't healthy. And I knew it. I knew it. God was pricking my heart saying, Stacy, you are, you are making him an idol. And I knew that, but I was like pushing away, pushing away because it was easier to do that. He was here. He was tangible. We could just fix it. And so one of the things that may not seem like it fits and it kind of makes me get scratch my head at times is that I was always afraid that he would cheat on me. Does not make any sense because he never flirted with people. He wasn't inappropriate. He, there was nothing, but I think it fed my insecurities. Like that was one way that if he did that, I would be nothing because everything was in being this man's prize or whatever. And also because as many of you probably know in church ministry, there might be just a few people who have failed morally. And so I just kind of knew it's going to happen. It's just inevitable. It'll happen to us. So I was terrified of it. So I'd ask him over the years if, you know, we were good or if we'd hear of a pastor that fell morally, whether it was adultery or pornography or whatever. And some of these we knew personally, I would always be like so scared. And I would say, Hey, do we need to talk about anything? Are we good? Are you, you struggling with anything? And he'd be like, no, 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 we're fine. So of course, you know, Stacey believes that because I had to, <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to, entertain the fact that it might be going on. I, I, I just had to keep this. We're the good couple. We had that good reputation and I desperately needed it. And if any of that ever happened to us, that would be ruined. You know, that was kind of my being betrayed obviously was fear, but I think the reputation being ruined was almost a bigger thing to me uh, because then what would I have? There was a time about six months before our whole world changed that I asked him about this again, if there was anything, you know, we needed to talk about. I don't remember if something had happened with somebody we knew or this, you know, those fears were just kind of creeping up again. And I asked him and he looked at me and it looked so sincere, like right in my eyes and was like, sweetie, trust me until I give you a reason not to. And I felt so bad. I felt horrible. I was like, he's going to leave me one day because I don't trust him and he's going to get tired of this and just walk out. And then, like I said, six months ish 
he, <laughs> the way I put it, he gave me more reasons than I ever imagined to not trust him. So this was January 6th, 2009. Okay. We, we just had our 17th anniversary on January 4th, which was Sunday. And on Tuesday, the 6th, he called me to come. I don't remember what he made up something. He needed to see you about something. And I thought I'm going to get like a reimbursement check or something. And I go up to the church and he's standing in the parking lot and I have no idea anything's wrong. Right. He just asked me to come to the church and his face, he just looked guilty. And I was like, what have you done? You know, I mean, it was the weirdest thing. And so we went to, we just drove down to another church parking lot that was empty. It was cold. It was raining. It was just the most disgusting day. And he started to tell me that for the entire time we had been married, he had been struggling with pornography. And that's what he told me that in that conversation, that that was it. So we, I was immediately, I think one of the first things I said was, is, okay, you've been lying to me the whole time, right? Because I asked these questions all throughout our marriage. Like, why in the world would you lie? I, and that was like, I knew it. Because I always did feel like something was off, but I never could. I, I couldn't put a finger on it. I never found anything. We had gotten a computer back in when we had moved to Louisiana. We got our first computer in our house. And that's when for him, the floodgates opened because before that we didn't have smartphones. We had like this little flip phone. So there, he didn't have access there and we didn't, we didn't have a computer. And so it was a lot harder to get your hands on. You had to go buy stuff and he wasn't going to, he didn't do that. And so when we got that computer, the floodgates opened and he had so much access. So that from that point on, he could look at it whenever. But I never found anything. I'm not good with technology. I don't know how to check history. I, I don't even know that it occurred to me to check history. So the first thing was, you know, that shock and just just so angry that he actually lied to me. And then that conversation, we were standing in our bathroom when I asked him and he was like, trust me till I give you a reason not to. I'm like, and I became very well acquainted with a lot of swear words that <laughs> I didn't use before. Just like, how in the world could you stand there and say that to me, you know, and lie to my face? I was so mad. And then I went on to, you've ruined a reputation. I'm thinking about, you're going to get fired. You can't keep your job. That's not how it works. You know, everybody gets fired when they're on staff at a church and this happens. And so we went to the church. We started talking to the few pastors. And one thing that... I will never forget it. It was like huge, huge, huge. I guess something that happened to me personally is that I was in an office while they were talking to Greg and just asking him about what had been going on. And he was caught, by the way, too. He didn't confess on his own. He knew that probably it was about to come out. So that's when he called me. And he says this himself. He's, he's you know, encourages guys. He talks to guys a lot. He's like, you guys need to just, if you're struggling, ask for help, get help, reach out. He says, I'm not that guy. I didn't do that, but it is so much better when you do. So they were talking to him and trying to get the whole story and not everything was adding up, but they were talking to him and I was in an office by myself and I was sitting there and I remember thinking back on all of those missionary you know, years um, being raised on the mission field and all the things that were so huge for me and so, so impacted my life and the things that I was taught. And even though there was legalism and there were all the rules and all that kind of stuff, I had a solid foundation and I knew that I believed in God. However, this wasn't supposed to happen because my story in my head was do all the right things, be obedient. And I wasn't perfect. I didn't, I would never claim to have been perfect, but I was pretty good. <laughs> you know, I did 
the way that you're supposed to do things. I did them. And so then you don't get this story when you do that. That's, that's what I believe. And so that was really messing me up. I was like, this isn't supposed to happen, God, what is going on? And so I remember thinking, this is my moment where I've heard people talk about it before crisis of belief or crisis of faith. Is this really true? And this was my moment. I was like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. It's either a lie or it's true. And God, maybe, maybe he still does have a plan for my life. I don't know what it could be because everything's ruined. But in that moment, I decided that I wanted to see what was next. I didn't want to divorce Greg. I didn't, I didn't really even have a box for that because growing up again, divorce is not an option. Divorce is not an option. You stay married. God hates divorce. And I believe that God hates divorce, but I also believe that when this kind of stuff happens, that we do have choices and that comes from God's word. But where I was, I did not have that option in my mind. That was just not going to happen. And I still so desperately needed Greg and I desperately needed the reputation. So how are we going to fix this is where kind of I went next. But I decided in that moment I was going to you know, stay the course. I was going to see what was going to happen. I didn't want to leave Greg. I also had this sounds weird, but it wasn't anything, no audible voice or anything like that. But God was saying to me, do I have your attention? And that was interesting because. I, like I said before, he had been, you know, pricking my heart about putting Greg in a position that he shouldn't be in. I was idolizing him and the friendships and my reputation and all those things. And so in that moment, it was like, oh my gosh, not that I was being punished. I don't ever want to come across like that, but I feel like God was getting my attention. He was like, you are miserable. You are exhausted and enough. So it was time to work on Greg and out him as well, because he was dying and he was miserable. And God was like, no more. You are not going to do this anymore. So he allowed him to be caught. And then for me, it was, you know, very different, but same thing. I was miserable. I was dying. I was exhausted. And this is not what he wanted for us. And so I, it was very loving. I didn't feel it as like, oh, do I have your attention now? Um, but it was just like, hey, you know, are you ready to, to live differently? And I just, you know, just in a split second, there's, these are just like quick things happening. I was like, I'm ready to do this, you know, and I didn't know what that looked like, but I knew I was going to be okay. I did not know that my marriage would work, but I knew I could be okay. And so we started a process. They got us in with a therapist and she was the only therapist that had an opening that week. She was a sex addiction, CSAT, they call them, certified sex addiction therapist. We didn't know what we were dealing with. I didn't even know what sex addiction was. I had no clue what that was. And so for God to allow us to be connected with her was huge. We we probably went to her at least every week, maybe twice a week in the beginning. It was intense. She got him connected with a men's group that he started going to. He got a sponsor. Um, I guess we started realizing that this is an addiction. This is something that is beyond, I don't think any amount of looking at pornography is acceptable, but not everybody who looks at it is considered an addict, like where it's hijacked their brain and all of that. But we were in that, that's where we were. And so he was getting help. He was repentant. He was so broken. However, he was still lying. Everything finally came out a week later that this addiction had led to adultery outside of our marriage. And so honestly, the first time that he admitted to, you know, the pornography, that was more 
sounds really weird to say it, but it was really more devastating because of, I think, how much he lied about it all the years. I never really asked about adultery because I didn't, I didn't have a box for that. I mean, I kind of said, is there anything you need to tell me? But I wasn't really thinking he was cheating on me. It was hurtful. And I guess the emotions kind of caught up with it eventually of, of being so angry and devastated. But in the moment, it was just like, of course, yeah, that makes sense. You know, once everything was really just out and I had all of the information, I feel like things started to progress. Now that he was being fully honest and everything was out, he was really experiencing some freedom. What I started to feel was extreme anger because he's feeling good. And he's feeling free. And I've heard this from so many women who have gone through the same thing. And here I am under a pile of, I'll say rubble. That's not the word I use. <laughs> when I Usually when I talk, I'll say rubble. I'm under this pile of rubble and he's like walking and feeling better. And it makes sense to me. Like I'm, I'm able to understand, well, of course, all the lies are out and how horrible that must have been for you all those years. But, but now what do I do with all this stuff? And so. We were seeing our therapist and we were talking about everything. He did get fired from his job. And so we were home all day. The kids were, our kids were 14, 10, and seven at the time this happened. So they were in school, which was a blessing. So they would go to school and we would have all day and we would talk. I mean, I've never had like so much conversation with Greg and it was really good. We just a little side note about our kids. So yeah, 14, 10, and seven. Katie, our oldest, was the one that got the most information just because she was older and could understand more. Matthew, not as much. He, I'll never forget telling him and seeing his face. He just looked so disappointed. He didn't say anything. He just had this just um, crushed look on his face. And he just turned and went in his room and shut the door. It just broke my heart. And then um, our youngest was seven and she was pretty funny um, because she didn't have a clue for it. She was watching SpongeBob one time and somebody got fired and she's like, oh, that's like that. She didn't grasp, you know, the reality of things. But as they got older, they, you know, we had given them more and more information and now they all know. Anyway, so Greg's progressing and I'm getting more and more angry. And my counselor told me about a lady that I could call. She she gave me the name and number of, of the lady that had been through this. And I was like, oh no, no, I don't, I'm not talking to her because this is not going to be my life. I'm not going to do this forever. We're going to fix Greg. We get him back to normal and then we'll be fine. You know, I knew we wouldn't go back to Greg working at that church because that was, that was a done job. That wasn't going to happen again, but we could do something else. We could share this sweet, amazing redemption story, you know, and then that, that would be it. But I found myself just getting more and more resentful and more angry. At the same time, we were finding that we were getting healthier in our marriage because everything was out and I felt closer to him because the truth was out, but I was feeling really stuck. And so I finally said, whatever, I'll call this lady. I was so resentful. <laughs> so bless her heart for being willing to talk to me. But we started meeting and, and going through a book together. And, and eventually this ministry started with her and her husband, and another couple, and they had these support groups and I was a part of it. And that started a really huge piece in my healing, being with other women who understand what I was going through. When I would say something, they wouldn't look at me like I had horns running out of my head or, you know, say, oh, well, some people did say to me when I would talk about it. 
not women in this community. Let me, let me clarify that community. Women wouldn't say this, but outside of that, I had friends who were trying to walk with me and they would be like, Oh, I'd kill my husband or I, you know, there's no way I'd divorce them. I, there's no way I did it. Let me just say that if you haven't been through this and somebody shares this with you, please do not say that to them. <laughs> you can think that you would kill him. You can think that you would do whatever, but it is not helpful to say that to somebody because we don't know what we're going to do. We don't know what our options are. We don't know all the time. Sometimes we do, but, and it just, it's, I think Brene Brown, I think it was her. I don't know. It was somebody that talked about the new shame. It used to be divorcing your husband was shameful. And now the new shame is staying with your husband when they've done something like this. And so there's a lot of shame that women can feel when they decide to stay because it's like, who would stay with somebody who cheated with them? Well, when you love that person and you have a relationship, you have children, you have family of years of history, and not all of it was horrible, then it makes it really hard. It's not just a simple thing. So anyway, getting into this group of women, this recovery group was just huge. It was, you know, we would be able to share and talk. Nobody's fixing. Nobody's telling me what to do or giving me advice. It's just, I get to share just where I am and have people if you know about recovery groups, it's thank you for sharing. And that's it, you know, and there's a place that that's needed so much. Eventually we started, well, we were never really totally private with our story. We were open to sharing, you know, not, not all the details, but like in general, what had happened. Of course, many people at our church knew because Greg was fired and they had to let them know something was going on. And so as we met with people, we would share what God was doing and how he was healing us. And it was really healing to be able to talk about what God was doing in our marriage. And there was some shame there. It was hard to talk about. But the more we talked about it, I was realizing how freeing it was to be honest about it. All the things that I shared about the way I was growing up, I'm realizing in, in counseling and in reading all kinds of material that these things weren't healthy. And I didn't have to live that way. So those were huge for me. Like, oh my gosh, this actually isn't in the Bible that I have to say yes to everything. Jesus didn't say yes to everything. Oh my gosh, you know, and it's like seeing things in such a different, different way than I, than I was brought up seeing things. So we're talking to people and our counselor would have clients and she'd refer them to call us. This was after we've done some healing, mind you, and we're feeling stronger and we're making some progress. And so she starts sending clients to us to say, hey, you just might want to talk to this couple just to talk, not that we're counseling them or anything. And one time a girl called me and it was a friend of mine and she had just found out that her husband had been having an affair. And I just in that moment, I think it was God impressing it on my heart, I guess, that I want to use this to help other people and to also help you heal. Because when you are open about your story, it just, there's just something God does with it and it allowing God to do whatever he wants with it. And it is amazing how it helps people and it helps yourself. It was several years after that. It was 2015. We started a ministry as a nonprofit and it's a sex addiction recovery ministry. And we walk with people who are dealing with this just like we were. We didn't have a lot of resources. Even in 2009, there weren't a lot of resources. And so there's there's more. There's so many books and conferences now that you can go to, but we just felt like we wanted to do this and to have it specifically with sex addiction. So Greg walks with the husbands. I walk with the wives. We do couples coaching. We work with churches. You know, a lot of churches don't always know what to do. They don't know how to handle this. 
And so since we have that, Greg being in ministry, struggling with this and being fired and, and just having to walk through that and navigate through that, we've just learned a lot. The numbers of people in the ministry and on staff struggling with this and not having anybody to talk to because it's your livelihood. Who are you going to talk to? Because you're going to get fired, you know? And so just talking with church leaders about it and how to, how to help people and Maybe if they're struggling with it, but it hasn't gone so far, maybe they don't have to be fired right away. I mean, just kind of opening up possibilities of what it could look like to help people be honest and to help people heal. So that's what we've been doing since 2015. We have our own support groups for women, for men. We also have a group for women who struggle because that's a group of, you know, women struggling with pornography and sexual sin and addiction is growing. It's really hard for women to come forward with it because everybody talks about it being a man's issue, you know, and like it's a men's thing and the women feel so much shame, but everybody can struggle with it. You know, it's not just men, you know, children are finding pornography at such young ages, so they're becoming addicted to it at much earlier ages. And so them getting phones so young and all the the different devices and all of that. So there's just so much in this area that we have found that keeps us busy, honestly, you know, people calling and we can refer them to counselors. We don't, we're not professional counselors. We believe in professional therapy and that's an important piece, but it's not the only piece. We need community and we, we offer that community piece. That's kind of where we are. That's what we do now. And it's hard. It's really hard because it's not a ministry people want to talk about. It's not something that people want to fundraise for because it's very you know, we're on support and it's very confident. Everything's confidential. We can't have all these stories of people that have been helped by Awaken because who wants to be that story, you know, and be public about it. So it's hard, but God has blessed and God is taking care of us and God is allowing us to walk with so many people. So, so yeah, we're uh, doing this ministry full time. And while we are having these recovery groups, something that, you know, for Greg and I is that we continue to do our own work. We've done intense counseling in the beginning. Well, we don't continue that. This is, it's been 11 years now since that exploded. So we don't continue in counseling, although we are very quick to pick up that phone and call our therapist if we get stuck. If I could go back and do anything different, I would, people ask me that all the time. If you could go back and change anything, what would you do? Well, I don't think I would have ever known about this issue because I think Greg was not going to tell me the truth. I think all the times I thought we needed counseling and I mentioned that to Greg and he didn't want us to go to counseling because he might get caught. But I wish I had gone myself because I might not have known, but I would have at least been doing something for myself. And so if you think something is wrong, if something doesn't sit right with you, I would say, you know what, go, go to a counselor. And if you don't, can't figure it out, if there's anything with your husband, then there's stuff that we all need to work on. So as we've continued in this ministry, we have these support groups and I walk with women. I am constantly aware that all of the issues that I talked about with my insecurities and looking to people for approval, I'm aware of them and I can catch myself when I'm doing it, but it doesn't go away. It's ever present with me. It will always be present with me. And it will be the thing that I believe the enemy wants to use in my life to destroy what I'm doing because it's easy, right? It's it's my struggle. And same with Greg. He is going to always have things in place. He's got blocks and filters and all of that on all of his devices. And when he starts locking down things or not wanting to be honest or whatever, that is just just a little open door for the enemy to come in. And so, you know, I still I still struggle. And that's okay. There's a song, I think it's 10th Avenue North, about being free to struggle. God has given us freedom, 
and we are free, but we still struggle. And the struggle is not the problem, but it's when we recognize those things that we struggle with. And then when we don't get what we want, we go off on our own to try to get it. He's working to remind me, no, that's not, that's not what I have for you. And one of the guys that Greg got in touch with very early on in this process said something that he said it all the time. He said, God made you and he loves you and that's enough. That is all you need. He, he made me and he loves me. And so that makes me valuable. And I try to remember that it's so simple, but it's very, it's simple, but it's hard when I'm looking so hard for people to validate me because I want that often more than I want just to be okay with God's loving me. It doesn't fix things right away all the time. If somebody will validate or compliment me, that just feels good in the moment. But knowing and resting in the fact that God created me, has a purpose for me, and wired me the way that I am and loves me, then I don't need anything else. You know, he created me to be with people, to live in community with people. He created, you know, relationships and he wants that for us. He doesn't want us to live in isolation, but his love and my relationship with him is the the thing that matters and the thing that, you know, is, is all I need. Another thing that I want to tell anybody who's listening, who's potentially facing this, regardless of, and I think this is true no matter what you have going on in your marriage, is that if your marriage survives this and God restores and you get to renew that relationship, or if it doesn't, there are many people that we walk with, their marriages don't survive. You can heal. It's not the end of it for you. Your husband did do a lot of damage and a lot of things against you. But your life is not over. He doesn't have the power to ruin God's plan for you. That's the thing I tell women, like, you've got to do your work. You've got to step in and get involved in a support group and get therapy. Because long before your husband, there were things in you that were unique, that were broken, or a lot of people don't like to say they're broken. But I am sinful. And I have things that I run to or things that I try to go to to make my life work. And they're not God's ways. And so that's a lot of what I discovered in this process of recovery, we call it just learning that those things aren't good for me. And so I think that that's so crucial for everybody, because no matter what relationship you're in, your friendships, you may get married again. If you end up divorcing, you may get married again. Whatever your relationship, your kids, you need to be the healthiest version of you for yourself and for them. So that's like a big, huge thing for me. Like you need to heal. If you are wounded in any way and you don't deal with it, it will come up again. And they say the professional therapist will say you have to feel it to heal it. And it's so true. I just encourage anybody who's going through this to reach out to somebody. AwakenRecovery.com is our website. And then Stacy at AwakenRecovery.com is email. You can email me that way. Reach out or find somebody. Get Jessica. She can get you in touch with me or Greg and um, get help because it's hard. It's probably the hardest thing you might ever do, but it's worth it. Thank you so much for sharing your contact info. And I hope any listener in need will reach out to you or me if she needs support. Stacy, I just wanted to thank you so much, not only for taking time to share this story on our podcast, uh, but also for the incredible work you and Greg are doing with the Awaken Ministry. Putting your story out there like you're doing is risky and it's vulnerable and it takes a lot of courage. I'm a firm believer that we should not waste our suffering, uh, but instead use it to support and bless others, which is exactly what y'all are doing. 
And thankfully, there are resources out there now to help anyone struggling with uh, pornography or sexual addiction. Calvary Mac has partnered with 423 Communities, and we have support for both those struggling with addiction and also their spouses. You can find that info on the men's ministry page on calvarymac.com. So before we wrap up, Stacy, I just, I wanted to thank you for something you pointed out. You had so many wonderful and insightful things to share about insecurities, legalism, idolatry, reputation. We could talk so much more about each of those. But the point you made about having a support group that gets it just really hits home for me and probably many others. Each of us is suffering through something and we really need that friend or that group that speaks our language. I believe one of the reasons we often avoid talking about our struggle is the fear of the response. And like you said, if someone opens up to you about a cheating husband or really any other painful problem for that matter, please don't offer unsolicited advice. If If you haven't lived through it yourself, you probably don't understand, but you can still be a wonderfully supportive friend just by listening. So Stacy, are there any final words of hope you want to share with our listeners before we sign off? Oh goodness. I I just think that it's so hard not to feel and live in the fact that if this is your story, that they've robbed so much from you. And they have. The addiction takes so much from the spouse, from the family, from the kids or whatever. I think stepping into getting help, talking to one person and getting the story out there. I know a lot of people can't can't tell very many people at all. And I understand that. Um, you don't have to start a ministry. You don't have to be public with your story. But I think if I would encourage anybody, just don't live with this by yourself. You don't have to. You know, you can call me. <laughs> I'll talk to you about it in in one person. You know, it helps to share with one person. It will not go away by yourself. You you just won't. I'm sorry to say it just, well, I'm not sorry to say because God created us for community and that's how he wants us to heal. And so I don't know, that's not maybe a lightning bolt, but I I just think talk to somebody because it, it can change your life. It changed mine. Now Greg's, like I said, he was caught. He didn't come forward quite the way that would be ideal maybe, but Having it out in the open and getting into recovery, learning all these things that I've shared has absolutely changed my life. I would not want to be the Stacy that I was before. I live in so much freer and our marriage, we talk about the first 17 years, that marriage is dead. (laughs) And this is our second marriage and uh, we didn't divorce. So I'm not talking about that, but this is, we just started new. You don't, you don't get back to the way it was because that's how you got here. So you don't want to go back to the way it was, but you want to start new. And that doesn't happen for everybody. So again, I always want to be very sensitive. That's not everybody's story. The only way this worked is that Greg chose to do the work and turn from that sin. And I chose to do the work and do my part. It's it's never the woman's fault. Never, ever, 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 ever. I don't care what I don't care what is going on and you have done wrong. It is never ever your fault that he would choose these things. But we both have to do the work in order to heal. Sometimes the marriage still doesn't work and God can redeem everything. So that's probably more than you asked for, but <laughs> that's my answer. <laughs> it's perfect. And I, I, there, understandably with a, you know, with a story like this, we could easily talk for another hour. And Absolutely. there's so many other chapters to this, but hopefully this is, you know, just kind of a good starting point for somebody. Mm-hmm. And if they know that they can connect for more. 
Stacy, I was hoping that you would just close us in prayer for all of the women listening, but but specifically for those who have the same story. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'd love to. Thank you. All right. God, thank you so much for just being a redeeming God. I thank you that you can take anything that's broken and shattered and restore it. I just thank you that that as many times as I tell the story, that it's still just the work that you have done is is tender. Uh, my heart's tender, and I'm sensitive to the reality of where I was and where I am now. And so I pray that for all the women listening, for all the women who are in the middle of this or you know, they've just found out or they've, they've known for years and they don't know what to do. They don't know how to get help. God, that you would give them the courage to reach out to somebody and just start talking and get help. And God, I pray that you would work in the men's lives that are dealing with this Lord. If they're hiding, that you would give them the courage to reach out. And God, that you would just put your arms around the women who are struggling. Lord, I'm just so, so burdened for women that are, that are struggling by themselves. We can walk together and it's hard. It's hard and not everything is just wonderful once we start talking to people, but there's just something amazing and comforting when we are walking with other people who understand. So I pray that you would allow these women to find help and to find somebody they can talk to. God, I thank you for Jessica. I thank you for her heart and I thank you for the things you're walking her through that allow her to have this heart to to minister to others. God, I pray that you would allow us to be willing to share what we're going through, whether that's to a lot of people or just one-on-one, Lord, that you can use what we're going through to help somebody else. And and it's not wasted. Everything that we go through, you can use. And so it helps me to know that the pain has not been a waste. If I have learned things and can share that with somebody and give somebody hope, Lord, it's it's worth it. I don't, I'm not glad that I went through it. I don't, I wish there had been another way. But this is where we are and this is what um, has happened. And I just thank you that you can use it. God, I just pray that you would allow people again to be connected and to, to reach out and get that help, Lord. And, and that you, you ask the question, um, do you want to get well? And you will help us and you will heal us, but we have our part to do. So I pray that you would help everyone who is ready to just, just take that step. We love you and just thank you for this time. And I thank you for all the many ways that you use um, the things that we go through, Lord, for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much again for listening. We hope you come back for the next story. We've got many more to come. And until then, God bless. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast. A ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women. Okay. <laughs> I don't have a wrap up. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> yeah, not. And there. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's hard to. to... The actual yeah. <laughs> audio. <laughs> Although sometimes I feel like there should be like a blooper section. Like. <laughs> I still think we should get Greg in here to uh, sing a song. (laughs) He would do it, I'm sure.